Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former NL Rookie of the Year, two-time World Series champ, and one-time star on The Simpsons, Steve Sachs. Well, well, Steve Sachs from New York City. I heard some guy got killed in New York City and they never solved the case. But you wouldn't know anything about that, now would you, Steve? But there's hundreds of unsolved murders in New York City. You don't know when to keep your mouth shut, do you, sexy boy? And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. And joining us today, we got a five-time All-Star and the 1982 Rookie of the Year, Steve Sachs. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. How you, how you doing? Brett, great to be with you. I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm doing great. Um, you know, we're getting past. Uh, I like this time of year because uh, you know we're past the uh, we're past the solstice. So that means we're going to go into longer days, which means we're going to start our trek towards spring training. Uh, and um, it's great. So this is this is a this is a very oper- uh, opportunistic and and uh, fun time of the year for a lot of people. Everybody starts out the season with the same record and. Uh, that's encouraging for some teams if you're in Pittsburgh or, you know, Kansas City, places like that. So this is a nice time for everybody. Yeah, we got spring training. Well, normally it's going to be the pitchers would would uh, report in about a month. I don't know. You, you know, you right. hear conflicting reports. A month ago, it was a 140-game season. Now you got the commissioner coming yeah. out and say it's going to be the 162. So we'll see. Uh, but Steve, let's let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Northern California, from what I heard. You're mm-hmm. a huge you're a huge Giant fan growing up. Did you oh, ever yeah. imagine? Did you ever imagine you were going to be on the other side of that rivalry? And and I was looking through your bio, and mm-hmm. and I know, and we'll cover this later. I know in the '90s they had a run of Rookie of the Years, but. But it started with mm-hmm. Sutcliffe in 79. Then you go to Steve Howe in 80, yep. Fernando Mania mm-hmm. in 81, and then Steve Sachs, 82 Rookie of the Year. Mm-hmm. Growing up, did you ever think Did you ever uh, think for a second you were going to be playing for the Dodgers? No, no, Brad. I, ne- I never did, and I couldn't even imagine it. I mean, I grew up listening to Lon Simmons call the game, the Giants games, and you know, back then there was no cable and whatnot. So we had to just listen to the radio. That's how we got the games because you couldn't see the Giants on TV. Of course, growing up in Sacramento, those games, a mere 86 miles from Candlestick Park, you couldn't see those. They were blacked out. So we got the, we got the games through the radio and Lon Simmons. And I can remember just laying on the, uh, on the front room floor and our family would lay down on the floor and relax in the summer and listen to Lon bring the game to us and, waiting for McCovey to come up in the, in the ninth inning and hear the crack of the bat, and hopefully he wins the game, which he did, you know, quite a few times. Uh, and we just loved the Giants. As a matter of fact, when, when I was about 10 years old, uh, I was watching the game of the week. Actually, they had the Giants and the Dodgers on uh, a special game of the week. It was wonderful to see them actually broadcast, uh, you know, through our one of our channels that we got, the three channels, and they were on, they were on one of them watching the game of the week. And I told my dad and my brother sitting there watching with me, I said, you know, if the Dodgers ever drafted me, I wouldn't play for the Dodgers for, I don't know, a million dollars. And then, you know, about uh, eight to 10 years later, when they drafted me out of high school, it took, uh, it took 900, uh, it took $985,000 less for me to sign with the Dodgers. So 
that 15 grand came in real handy for me. I was the richest person in my family when I got that 15 grand. <laughs> yeah, the bonuses we get. You know, I, I remember a similar, yeah. <laughs> similar story when I said, I mean, I thought I was the richest man in the world. And next thing you know, I, I come back from instructional ball and Uncle, you know, Uncle Sam comes to call it. And I'm thinking, yeah. I didn't know I had to give this much. I got I to gotta turn in that that Bronco with the quadraphonic blow punk. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Mine, I mean, it Brett, was mine funny. Was a, uh, mine, was a, mine was a 76 Cutlass Supreme. It was a couple years old, and, you know, I was drafted in 78. So I got that 76 Cutlass Supreme, which was uh, unbelievable. And where I come from, you know, we didn't have much money. Uh, nobody did. Um, but, I mean, you can drive a Ford Fairmont into the parking lot of a, uh, of a Cracker Barrel, you know, and people come out and admire your car. So it was, it was one of those things where, you know, not a lot of money. But it was, it was okay, though. Yeah, and you and you come up and, and you go through that unbelievable run with the Dodgers with the uh, with the rookie of the years, man. I, mm-hmm. you know, it, it kind of repeated itself a decade later, and, and it started again with Caros, and then you had Piazza and Mondesi, Nomo, yeah. Hollinsworth, back to I mean five mm-hmm. in a row, and that was the beginning of my mm-hmm. career, uh, man. Mm-hmm. What is it with the Dodgers? How, how do you, how did you guys put that together? Yeah, basically, you had you know, nine rookie of the years in a 15-year period. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, they, the Dodgers, uh, the scout that drafted me, uh, was named, his name is Ronnie King. He's since passed a few years ago. But he would take uh, my brother and I out to, to this park out in Sacramento in the wintertime when we were in the minors, and he would work us. I mean, he would really work us in the winter, ground balls, hitting, uh, whatever, whatever it took. It was almost like we were, we were working out all year long and our scout was very, very uh, involved in that with us and, and other players as well. But I think it's really just a, a tribute to the way the Dodgers draft and, and they develop really well. Uh, they got great coaches, um, you know, from our infielding coaches to our hitting coaches, they really stack it up with, with guys that can really relate and teach the game the right way. And, when you come up in that organization, you get to the big leagues, you're, you're expected uh, not to be in, in a learning curve. You're expected to be able to toe the line and, and be productive at your position. Um, my situation was a little bit different um, because when I was drafted at 18, um, I spent uh, two, uh, a rookie ball season coming out of high school. Then I had two years of A ball, and then I went to double A, and I, uh, I got called up from double A. So essentially, I never, I never went to college. I never played triple A. And I never even finished double A when I got called up. So I was kind of bucking the trend for this organization of, of being ready. I don't know that I was completely ready. So I had to learn a lot of this, of this uh, game when I was in the big leagues because I missed vital chunks of the growth, of the growth curve and, and learning uh, through either college or the Meyer leagues. And I just didn't have any of that. So I, I was kind of rushed through, uh, happy to do it. Uh, but there was a lot I probably could have learned with another year or two in the minors, but you know, it turned out okay. It turned out great. So you win the, the rookie of the year in 82. Does it make things easier or harder going forward? Cause you hear a lot of these stories, a lot of guys win rookie mm-hmm. year and, Year two years later, they're not to be heard from again. Right. Obviously, your right. story is a lot different. You know, you went on to be a five-time mm-hmm. All-Star. Does that make it easier or harder? But in some senses, uh, uh, Brett, it, it makes it harder. 
Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that throwing issue that I went through for two months of my second year. Um, and that was directly uh, because I was putting pressure on myself. Um, and I think rookie of the year kind of sets a high bar for a guy that's just coming in. I mean, you wouldn't want it any other way. It opened up a lot of doors too. And it also showed the world that you could play there. So I think all in all, uh, it, in some sense, it was harder, but in other ways, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a reaffirmation to anybody that questioned whether you could play or not show that you could. So um, I wouldn't have had it any other way. You know, it's just about being able to handle it. So your debut in 81, you got, you end up getting a ring, uh, 81 with the mm-hmm. Dodgers, another ring in eight, in 88. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about it last night, uh, before our show today. And it dawned on me 88. Okay. Obviously you guys when that's the big year where Gibson hits the huge home run. And yeah. I got, I'm going to ask you for a lot of stories today, but I got one for you to start that yeah. year. I'm a freshman. I think I'm a freshman in college at USC. And mm. you guys are getting ready for that game. I make a phone call. Somehow I get a hold of Lasorda. He leaves me oh. two tickets. And I'm, I'm talking a couple hours before the game. I've got a scooter. Wow. It's not even, it's not even street legal. My youngest brother or my younger brother, Aaron, who's a sophomore in, in high school at the time, is up visiting me. For the week, and I throw him on the back of the scooter. We head to Dodger Stadium on all back roads. Park it, you know, you know where you come in, where the visiting team comes oh in to the right field. I park the scooter right there. Walk in. We we probably got the worst seats in the house. We're in the upper deck, right field. I can see in the parking oh. lot from my seats. So we wow. get to the eighth inning. You know, I, I'm growing up in this game. So we always, you know, mom's always telling me as a kid, hey, let's get out of here and beat the crowd. So the eighth inning, Aaron and I jump on the scooter to beat the crowd. I get home into my college dorm room and Gibby's rounding the bases. So oh. I was there, wow. but I missed it. <laughs> oh. So tell me all about hey. that 88 and, and how awesome that was. Oh, it was incredible. And how ironic it would be that Tommy leaves the ticket for a kid that's going to be an all-star and his brother's going to be the manager of the New York Yankees. That's kind of ironic. It's just the, the value that's on, on that, that little scooter going up through Los Angeles on side streets is pretty amazing. That's, a, fa- that's a famous scooter, um, too. It was passed down yeah. to the next generation of SC boys. Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah, so 88 was a year where, you know, we, we were picked by the, by the baseball pundits to, to finish fourth in our division. No chance we were going to win it. Uh, but Fred Clare really did go in there and kind of, uh, you know, shuffle a lot of things around. He brought in Kurt Gibson, Alfredo Griffin. He made a trade in the season for John Tudor, um, got Jay Howell on the team, and really strengthened us up the middle. John Shelby was our center fielder. He'd really go get the ball in center field. And we were just a lot stronger up the middle now that we got the center fielder, a new shortstop, and we were on our way. And uh, we had the, the year with Oral Hershiser, which is just unreal what he did that year, passed the record of 59 and two-thirds consecutive innings of shutdown baseball that Don Drysdale had posted. And, and Oral Hershiser was just a one-man crew. I mean, it, it, we knew that, <laughs> that all we had to do is score maybe two, and, and it was over. I mean, he was going to shut these guys down. didn't matter who we were playing. He was just a magical year. Um, everything went right for us that year. Gibson was a, was a tornado in the clubhouse when he first got there. Um, he got in this big, uh, you know, 
uh, hullabaloo with Jesse Rosco, who put the, the, the eye black in his hat, gets and puts the hat on, and people start making fun of him, and that was not what you do to him. You didn't make fun of this guy. He was all business. Um, and that kind of turned things upside down. Uh, but we started winning, and we were, you know, Gibson started having fun, uh, kind of let his guard down a little bit. He was laughing a lot. Lasorda was laughing. We were winning games. Oral was mowing people down, and it was just a magical, absolutely magical year. Everything had to, to land in the right way. During the season, the Mets beat us 10 of 11. One game was washed out because of rain. Um, and then we have to play them in, in the post, in postseason. Well, we beat, we beat them in seven. And then we had to beat the, the mighty Bash brothers with the Oakland A's in the, in the World Series, and we beat them in five. So this was a really good team we had. I, I would say that talent-wise, we were, we were better than average uh, a team, but unity and togetherness and all that stuff, I've never seen it be so powerful as we had on our team. We had, we had togetherness on our team. We had such a close-knit team. It was amazing how, how good and close we were. Um, talent, we were good, but we weren't great. But our team was great. So, Yeah, and you mentioned that, that uh, Hershiser 59 scoreless. And it's unbelievable to me. I mean, I've been a part of, uh, I've been a part of it, a no-hitter. And as the game mm-hmm. went on, uh, you know, you guys kind of start, you know how, position players you don't want to talk to the pitcher about it you're kind of looking at each other and, right and get to the eighth mm-hmm. inning it's almost like all right don't don't screw this up now yeah, uh, really it, did it get like that Buckle with down. the world during that streak i mean as you get to 40 innings and now you know you're starting to hear about mm-hmm. it reporters are starting to report on it does it get to a point defensively where you start thinking when oral's out there oh come on don't mess this up or is it just yeah something that it I, I mean 59 innings is ridiculous uh, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's not even thinkable now. And uh, yeah, I mean, as the games kind of, you know, we're trudging along, it's, you didn't want to mess things up. I remember, I remember when we were playing against the Padres, I, I don't know which game it was or where we were there, but, um, right there towards the end, I believe Tony Gwynn comes up. I mean, that dude always seemed to come up when there were two outs and, uh, you know, the bases loaded or, you know, or two guys on, and that dude was always coming up in that situation, and you know he was going to hit a bullet somewhere. You just hoped he hit it at somebody. And I think that happened a time or two where Oral had some runners on, you know, and somebody would hit a rope and it would be a line drive at somebody. And, oh, man, thank God that, you know, you're just thinking like, you know, you're going to knock anything down and and throw the guy out or dive and make a catch. But thankfully, the, the thing was preserved by the fact that a couple of times guys hit a line drive right at somebody and and that was the end of the inning. You got to see up close and personal uh, Fernando Mania. I got to face mm-hmm. him, you know, at the end of his career when he went to the cutter ball. You know, when he first came up, mm-hmm. he was he was the first guy that kind of reinvented, you know, and we called it a screwball. Mm-hmm. The only other guy I knew that threw a pitch similar was Tug McGraw. But what was that like going mm-hmm. through that for man, Fernando Mania? Um, it, was, it, was, it was amazing to see the knees buckle uh, on the right-handed hitters. He'd throw that thing. He could, he could adjust the speed on it. He got different depths on that, on that pitch. Um, and, you know, he would, he would throw that, and the guy's knee would buckle, and that thing would break over the plate. It's like, wow. I, I never really faced Fernando until I went to the Yankees. Uh, I think I faced him in a spring training game or something. But that thing was amazing. And he could, he could uh, spot it. He could, uh, you know, he had great command of it. 
He could throw it hard or soft and he could throw it, you know, he could throw it a little bit higher. Uh, so he used it as an off speed pitch as well. Um, and he could throw it pretty hard where it had like a break to it. Um, but he was just a master with it. The good thing about this is he, he learned this screwball from Bobby Castillo. Um, and, you know, and Fernando was just kind of like a, a guy that had a pretty good arm, but he had problem locating when he learned that screwball, which he, he threw it with his wrist. He didn't really throw it where he turned his whole elbow over. He would just turn his wrist over. Um, and that's why he really didn't have any, any problems with, uh, you know, with the injuries or anything. Uh, and he was just, uh, you know, magician with it. I saw Fernando his first day when the Dodgers acquired him. It was in Arizona instructionally. Fernando came in from Mexico. He had hair um, almost down to the middle of his back. Um, and, you know, he was, <laughs> he was throwing balls all over the place. The cut out of the grass in front of home plate, he would throw them over the catcher's head into the screen. Um, and he had no idea where the thing was going. And then, you know, he started to mature a little bit. Got great command on the pitches, learned the screwball, and the rest is history. We lost a uh, probably the best ambassador for baseball I've ever seen. You know, just a personality bigger than life. Tommy Lasorda, mm-hmm. uh, you got to play a long time for Tommy. Uh, speak to that a little bit. Well, Tommy was, um, I was very close with him. Um, I think he liked me for a couple of reasons, maybe because I was Catholic and he was Catholic. Um, maybe because I was, my mom's Italian and obviously Tommy's Italian. Um, and so whatever it was, uh, Tommy and I kind of, kind of hit it off because it kind of reminded me of that side of our family, you know, the kind of the loud and the jokes at the dinner table and the food. And it's kind of what my family was like on my mom's side. It was, uh, it was very much very similar to that traditional Italian family. Um, and, uh, I think, I think Tommy and I hit it off cause he knew that I loved the game and I played hard and, and that's what, that's what he was like. Um, it, it Tommy was a, a guy that pretty much set the premise in the clubhouse where, you know, you come here, you play hard and, and it's a family atmosphere. And I've never seen, I've heard people talk about, well, we're a family. Now it, it's, it's not until you've been in his clubhouse where, uh, you know, he would never denigrate a player in front of other people. He would certainly never talk about somebody in the press, never. And if he had something to say to you, he would take you in his office and lock the door and he'd let you have it. I mean, he would air you out. Uh, and I've had some times where he did that to me. And then afterwards, he'd, he'd kiss you on the cheek and say, OK, bring everybody in. Let's 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 have some dinner because, you know, he had food in his office every night um, and, and it was over. And it, and it really was over. There was no animosity. There was no hidden agendas anywhere. Um, he wasn't out to get anybody. And, you know, he, he was straight with you. Here's one thing he told me, Brett. Um, when I got called up in 81, I, I played, uh, you know, in August. Uh, I think it wasn't a September call up. I got called up in August. And I played through August and all of September because Lopes was hurt. And then at the end of September, it was, it was evident that we were getting ready to ramp up and go to the playoffs because we won the first half. In 81, there was two halves of the season because of the strike. And so we were in the playoffs. And so we knew we were going. So Lasorda said, he brought me to his office. He said, Lopes is healthy. He's going to, I got to play him. So I want you to sit down on the bench. Don't say anything. Just sit down on the bench. And I, you know, I said, okay. He said, I just want you to know that if I'm the manager next year, you're going to be the second baseman. And I said, whoa. He said, but you just sit there and, and don't say anything. And, but the guy doesn't lose his job because he's hurt. And that's where, that's what Lopes' situation was. 
And he says, and I got to play the veteran for the playoffs. I said, yes, sir. So I sat down, shut my mouth. Um, I went to, uh, I went to winter ball in Venezuela and I played well there. And I came back in the Caribbean series in Mexico representing Venezuela because we were in, in the Caribbean series and right there on, on ABC wide world of sports, I signed the com- my, my contract, my first big league, you know, going to the big leagues contract because about six hours before that, they just traded Davey Lopes and Lasorda was right. Stuck to his word. I was a second baseman now um, when the season was going to start. So it was amazing. It was pretty an amazing thing, but that's what Tommy was like. I mean, he, he gave his word and he stuck to it. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you hit it on an interesting point because the game was different back then and, and stuff that like mm-hmm. the story you just told about that stuff like that really did happen. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, to tell, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of set it up for the audience. I mean, you were replacing, for a long time, what was a legendary infield in, in uh, yeah. LA. And so it was a big mm-hmm. deal when Davey Lopes was moving on for the new kid, you know, the new kid in town. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me. Yeah. And that's, that's how the game was back then. All right. I said, I was going to ask you from stories. Uh, we, we all hear it, you know, as peers around the league and, and, you know, one story I've heard so many John Olerud stories about his helmet and Ricky had, and, and I hate to tell people, mm-hmm. but it, but it's false. It's a great story. But I've heard some Pedro mm-hmm. Guerrero stories. You got any for me? <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, I can tell you lots of Pedro Guerrero stories. But since <laughs> me, we are give a me your best. PG <laughs> podcast, I'm not going yeah. to pass on some of them. Um, but well, I, I remember when I was going through that throwing issue, uh, you know, uh, Pedro was uh, he, he was telling the story about when he's at third base, he thinks of a couple of things. And Tommy sort of says, uh, Pedro, what is that? And Pedro, if you think I had some issues at second base, you should have saw Pedro's issues at third base. His issues were, were way worse than mine. But, uh, but anyway, he's, he's saying, when I'm playing third base there, Skip, I think about two things. And Skipper says, what's that? He says, I pray that they don't hit me the ball. And he says, yeah, what else do you think? He says, I pray that they don't hit it to Steve Sachs either. <laughs> so that, that was kind of like what we were, we were dealing with. It was, it was a good way to kind of ease the tension. But 83, that was in 83. 83, we won our division, and, and we were in the playoffs in, in 83. We got beat, but, but nonetheless, we, we were in the playoffs in 83. Yeah, and, and that's the story I've heard. and uh, I've heard some people tell it, and, and it's like, it's funny. I mean, I don't know Pedro Guerrero, but I've heard enough about him to and to say <laughs> it in that accent. I mean, it's it's yeah, funny. the All accent right, so, right. So he, was, he, was, he was kind of like the funny guy on the team, you know, with, with his accent, and he played that up quite a bit. But Pete was a good guy, and and uh, boy, he was a really good hitter for a number of years. He was really a dominant middle of the order run producer. You know, he had some some great years in the middle of that order. Pedro was. Great hitter. So 83. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we talked about, you've touched on it a few times. You had the throwing issue. And mm-hmm. uh, as, as we talked on the phone before, before we did the show, you know, I, I got to see in my time, I got to, to watch Chuck Knobloch go through it. And man, oh, yeah. I, I felt for him as a fellow second baseman. I was in Atlanta mm-hmm. in 1999 and Mark Wohler's our closer was coming off throwing issues where he, he was just, he had a, he had, something going on where he couldn't throw a strike. You went through it briefly yeah. in 83 and, and, and especially you were a, you were a, you were a really good defender and not everybody that knows the Steve Sachs 
story knows how good of a defender you were. Tell me what that's like. I couldn't imagine uh, going through it at that position, especially, you know, Pack Stadium. Uh, Tell me a little bit what that was like for you and how it how it kind of changed your life a little bit. Well, well, let me just say this: is, is that when when you're going through this, and I know you can't imagine, Brett, you never went through something like this. And I was I can lucky. Tell you, there's a lot of players, huh? I, I feel I feel blessed not to have gone through it. Yes, and, and it could happen to anybody. It really could. But I can tell you, when you when I was going through this, it was the loneliest, most embarrassing, horrible. Just I was questioning why the Lord was putting me through this. When I got drafted, I got drafted. The number one reason I got drafted that Ronnie King drafted me is he said, because of my throwing arm, he thought I had a great arm. And he says that that was the, the main reason why I drafted you. Cause, cause you could either pitch or you could play the infield or outfield. He said, I draft you. Number one reason why is because you're throwing arm. I always had a really good arm. I mean, I was a sh- I got drafted as a shortstop. Um, and I always had a good throwing arm. That was the, you know, the big thing that I, I think it was the number one thing for me. I, I didn't get faster until I was in the minor leagues. I started getting bigger and stronger and I started getting a lot faster. And that's why I became a leadoff hitter. But, um, it is the worst feeling in the world. I know exactly how it started. I made an error early in the season on a ball. I didn't even have to throw. It was on a relay back to home plate against Montreal. I think the second game of the season. And uh, it was a hold after the runner was holding a third. And I just hummed it in there anyway, a one-hop to Socha at home plate. It's a good throw. It hit his shin guard and went off and a run scored. And I started, I started thinking about it. <clears throat> and that's how the whole thing really manifested itself into this, into this problem of throwing the ball. And people would always say, well, you know, you had a mental, what's the, what's the deal about the mental block when you're throwing? And I, The thing is, it's not about having a mental block. And uh, I can tell you how I got over this thing. It's a a little bit of a a story. My dad actually helped me on the last day of his life here on earth. My dad's the one that really kind of showed me what what I had to do. And it was just about what you were thinking about. So anyway, long story short is, you know, it wasn't about having a mental block because you could, you know, you, you could decipher distances, you could drive, you could speak clearly. There was no mental block that you had. It was a it was a temporary loss of confidence, and when you lose your confidence, that's where it showed itself in this throwing issue. It was a, it was a matter of losing the confidence. When you get your confidence back, um, the thing disappeared. And then I went on to lead the league in fielding in my position in, in the American League when I went over to New York. Um, so that thing was all about the way you think and and the positive aspect of it. And, and if you just can get that in the right direction and keep your confidence at a high level, this thing never happens. And I wish I would have known that when I played, I, I could have conquered the thing in one day. Um, but I think it made me a better person. I think it made me a better player at the all-star game that year. I was fortunate to be in the all-star team that year. And my mom, I took my mom to the game with me because my father had just passed away. And uh, my mom said, you know what, someday you're going to look back and you're going to be grateful that you went through this, this throwing issue. And I thought, you know, I never knew that my mom was smoking hashish or into <laughs> drugs severely. Um, but I couldn't figure it out why she would say that, but she was right. My mom was right. I, I was, I was actually fortunate. I went through something like that because I was able to get over it. So in 88, you're, uh, after the 88 season, 
uh, with the Dodgers. Your tenure kind of ends there, and, and you head to New York. Mm-hmm. So you go from the Dodgers, one of the biggest sports franchises in the world, to probably the. So the, long mm-hmm. story short, there's no small markets for Steve Sachs. You just go from, from big <laughs> to bigger. New York. I mean, and, Chicago. I mean, <laughs> it, it's kind of a dream as a player. You, you're going to play. You're going to be a Dodger, and then and then you're going to be a Yankee. I mean, uh, yeah, about as high profile as it gets. You go there. You, you play there three. I mean, you hit three fifteen in eighty nine. You hit three hundred four in ninety one. Uh, what was the transition mm-hmm. like going from from L A. to New York, playing in the in the um, big city? For me, for me, it was overrated. When people talk about the transition of leaving one league and going to the other, it's still 60 feet, six inches away. Um, you know, well, you don't know the pitchers. Well, they don't know me either as a hitter. And so, you know, I, I, once the ball leaves their hand, now I'm in control. Uh, I always thought, you know, that, that it's basic, you know, still, you know, see ball, hit ball type of thing. For when I first got there, I think it took, I was, I got up to a kind of a slow start the first 10 days or two weeks. And then I started getting some hits. My confidence started. You know how confidence can ebb and flow, even for big leaguers, right, Brett? The confidence can 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 uh, ebb and flow a little bit, uh, depending on the, the moment. Depending on the moment. And Sometimes so my confidence started kind of. What's that? Sometimes we got to fake it too, till we, till we get it back. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've done some of, quite a bit of that, and and so you know, once I got on a roll, it was it was. Uh, it was, I was playing on a team with some good hitters on there too. And that always helps to be around other hitters that are, that are really productive. Mattingly was there. Ricky Henderson was there. Um, we had Jesse Barfield, Mel Hall could really hit a fastball. We had guys that could really hit. And so that made it fun for me. And, and so I, I, I really liked playing. I felt playing in New York was less pressure than playing in Los Angeles. And people say, wow, what, how could that be? Well, in New York, there were so many stars with Don Mattingly and, and, uh, you know, Jack Clark was for there when I first got there too. Dave Winfield was there and Ricky Henderson. So they didn't care about me. I, I was nothing compared to these guys. So I just got to kind of ease in there and go and pack on a good year. And before you know it, you know, I had a, I had a really nice first year there and I enjoyed playing in New York. I love George Steinbrenner. He was really good to me. Um, and it was all a plus plus. The only thing was missing is we, we weren't really that good because we didn't have any pitching. If we had some pitching, we would have been a dynamite team, but that didn't come until the mid nineties. All right. Give me, uh, give me some Bob Boone. You got any Bob Boone stories? Oh. For now it's, uh, it's back whatever. when interleague wasn't prevalent, but I know you crossed. Paths. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't get uh, a lot of interaction with, with Bob Boone. Um, because I was obviously in the other league for the bulk of his time when I was, when I was playing. Um, but I, I just remember him as, uh, as just a, a great professional. Uh, he had a tremendous career and this is, this is lineage in your family going up, I believe to your grandfather. Right. Um, yeah. and so, so you guys have had that rich tradition of being great players, all of you. Uh, and he, you know, Bob was, was like that. He was your dad. He was a solid catcher. Um, you know, you, it was one of the guys, I think, because I was a base dealer that you had to figure in, uh, who the, who, you know, was catching behind the plate because he was, he was that, he was that good of a catcher. Most of the time I didn't care who was catching because I didn't steal bases off the, off the catcher. I always stole bases off the pitcher. It didn't matter. I didn't care who was catching. 
Um, but in some instances, like, and I'm not just blowing smoke, like your dad, he was very savvy, very, very savvy um, behind the plate. And you had to figure that in if you were going to, you know, try to steal bases on him. You knew the catcher wasn't going to make a mistake because sometimes I like to look in there and see if I could see a sign when I'm leading off the base. And, you know, you're not going to get that from Bob Boone. You got you to gotta earn it, in other words, if you're going to steal off of him. Um, and then I was fortunate to go on some Nike trips. Um, and your dad was there, always a class, just a, just a classy, classy, great guy. And, uh, that's, that's what I remember of, of Bob Boone. So all pluses. All right. So you're, so you're LA and you're New York. So you're, you're kind of Hollywood, your whole career. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, well, I want to uh, talk about, I wasn't, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. I'm just talking about you're playing, you're playing in LA, you're playing in New York and in this, oh, yeah. some door, some doors open for you. So I want to go and yeah. tell me about your, your episode of the Simpsons. Oh man. All right. Well, uh, I actually, Brad, I got more, I more too time. after that. <laughs> What's that? I got more coming after the Simpsons answer. Uh, hey, I, I got, I got more acclaim from the Simpsons than I did playing. I mean, I got all the time people say, what was it like in Homer? What's Homer Simpson? Like I said, uh, he's a caricature. Okay. He's not real. Uh, he, he, he is actually a figment of somebody's imagination. Believe it or not, he's not real. Oh, okay. So anyway, it's crazy. Um, but it was fun. Uh, Mattingly and I, uh, when I was with the Yankees, uh, they asked if we'd like to do it. And the Simpsons was, Simpsons was not a big, strong show. We, we thought it was just going to be a cartoon that was on maybe a, a year or two. Uh, and here we are. I don't know how many years later it's been now. And that thing is still an iconic show now. And the one that we did, Homer at the Bat, is one of the top five that they said that they ever did. As a matter of fact, Homer Simpson was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Hall of Fame. Um, and I was at that induction ceremony because I was on the, that episode. So technically, Booney, I guess you could say that I'm in the Hall of Fame because Homer Simpson, that episode's in the Hall of Fame and I was on that episode. So I guess that's, that's where I stand now in the Hall of Fame is with Homer Simpson. And now I, as cool as I think the Simpsons thing is now, uh, I, I kind of envy you for this. Tell me, give me the Hollywood squares. I, I oh, grew up okay. watching, watching that I, show. I was on a I'm thinking I want to be in one of those boxes. I was on a few. Uh, there was Hollywood Squares. I think I was on once. I was on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I was on that show. Uh, I was on Square Peg uh, with, with Sarah Jessica Parker. Where she was on that show when she was a little girl. Um, let's see. who. What other things? Was I? I was on a, I was on a, 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 a soap Who's opera the boss? that only went for like a year and a half. It's called Sunset Beach. And, and I was on this soap opera and they said, okay, here's your, 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 uh, playing a guy named Vincent. That's your character is the guy named Vincent. I said, okay, what does Vincent do? Well, Vincent works at a, at a convent. Uh, and I'm, I'm like the repairman at the convent. Um, and you have to, something's going to happen to these nuns that are there and you have to pick up this nun and you have to carry her to safety through the forest. That's kind of what you're going to do in this soap opera. And you're, again, your character, character, character is Vincent. And I thought, okay, great. I mean, what are my lines? And they said, well, that's the interesting part, Steve. You see, Vincent is a deaf mute and you don't have any lines. You just, you just kind of, you don't even do, you don't even acknowledge anything because you can't hear or talk. 
So I said, this is perfect for me. This is a perfect character caricature for me. A character that doesn't talk and can't hear anything. How great. And I don't have to do any, you know, I don't have to have a spot where I have to be. You just carry these people through the, through the forest. And I thought, fantastic. I could do this acting all day long. So that was my acting. Uh, that was the, kind of the depth of my acting. Um, pretty easy when you don't have, doing, you have to do any sp- uh, speaking or listening. See, but I mean, if you come up with the Kansas City Royals or the Detroit Tigers, you're you're not going on all these shows. So that's why I prefaced <laughs> no. it with the with the Hollywood label. Absolutely, so now- Brad. I also had a, I also, I got to tell you about my one commercial I had in L.A. too. It was it was um, Howard's Appliances, and I did this Howard's <laughs> Appliance for about three years, and I made like almost as much money. I made forty thousand dollars my first year in the big leagues, forty grand. And I made like $32,000 doing these Howard's appliance commercials. So I almost doubled my money uh, doing, you know, selling TVs and, and microwave ovens for Howard's. So not bad. <laughs> so you, you got a lot of points <laughs> racked up. And I don't know. What, yeah. what do they call it? What do they call it in Hollywood when you, when you get your, uh, I don't oh, know, the actor's card? You, yeah. yeah, you got you got a lot of points. Listen, I still get, I still get, uh, uh, commissions, I guess you'd say, that, is that what it's called? Commission checks from yeah. um, how, from not from Howard's, but from uh, how, you know, the, 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 the acting stuff I did um, from Simpsons. I still get residual checks. That's what they're called. And I've gotten residual checks, lots of them. And they come in the form of about one was, I remember one was two cents. I had one that was like a buck 83. I had one that was like, uh, you know, 65 cents and, I, I get a few of those a year, but I don't think I've had one over 10 bucks. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like our union checks. We get once you retire, the, the checks in spring training yeah. are really good as a player, but when you retire, you got to split mm-hmm. it with, with 10,000 other like guys. 25 bucks. Yeah. So now you're an yeah. analyst, serious <laughs> XM. Uh, how mm-hmm. do you like being on this side of the mic? I mean, this is kind of, you know, as you know, this is kind of new for me, uh, but, but yeah. how have you liked uh, doing this type of stuff? Well, I, I really like it. Um, I, I would much rather do this than be on the field. As you know, I, I coached one year with the D-backs uh, in 2013, uh, and that was great. Uh, that was fine, but I, I realized I don't, I don't want to be on the field anymore. I love the players. I love that part of it. I don't like the politics uh, of all of it. Um, I would rather be in the media like I am now. And I, I've, I've done, you know, TV before as well when I first retired. And that's something I'm looking forward to doing. I think I'd like to do more, more TV and, and radio as well. Um, radio to me is almost like doing theater. If somebody's an actor, it's where you really have to buckle down. And I think radio is a lot more difficult than, than TV uh, because you have to paint pictures and, you know, you have to be more precise. TV kind of speaks for itself. Um, but I really like working in the media. It's a lot of fun. I like expressing my love for the game. And, um, it's just a lot of fun being, being on this side of the mic. And I think as time goes on, I, I actually grow to, to like it more and more yeah, because you get more comfortable with it, you know? So I enjoy it a lot. I think you're going to like it too. Yeah. And I found, you know, the TV, like you said, I, I think TV is easier because usually it's a yeah. sound bite. Whereas radio, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of space to fill. You know, and listen yeah. to yourself after a while. Go, all right, what are we going to talk about next? What are we? TV, it's usually a segment. Okay, we're going to discuss this. Boom, boom, boom. And it's in, you're in, and it's a, and it's a wrap. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I yeah. get what you're saying there. 
Well, well, Saxy, I really appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. What we do on the Boone podcast at the end is we get a question from the fans. And to ask that question, Mm -hmm. we bring back Dan Levy. Dan, you there? I am here. What's going on, guys? Hey, Dan. Well, thanks for jumping on with us. We have one question from one fan. Can you handle it, Mr. Simpsons? I will. Uh, I'll give you my best shot. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, Steve. This one comes from Kendra in Bakersfield. Who are some of your favorite teammates of all time? Great question. Some of my favorite teammates. I was blessed to to play with so many great players, Hall of Famers. Don Mattingly was one of my one of one of my favorite teammates. Mike Socio was a great teammate. Uh, I played with with Bo Jackson. Uh, I played with unbelievable, talented guys like Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders. They were both teammates of mine. Um, and, uh, I mean, I have so many lists of, of pl- players that I really enjoyed playing with. Ricky Henderson was a teammate when I was with the Yankees, played with and against him. And I could just go on and on about all the guys. So um, I really don't know if I have a favorite player um, and managers as well. I can just tell you that all of them, brought something pretty special for me. And I learned a lot from, from watching these great players, but I've been lucky to play with a lot of great ones. And, you know, some of them were hall of famers. So tough to pick just one. And when you guys got done with the Simpsons, did you guys ask the creators and the writers, what did Mr. Burns mean by shaving Matting Lee's sideburns off? Cause it looked shaved to me. <laughs> you know how that happened, right? But Stump Merrill was my manager at the Yankees. Um, and he started a tip with Mattingly. So it was a spoof that they had, uh, brought about because St- Stunt Merrill actually got in a, in a, a spitting match with, with Mattingly about his, his hair. And I'm thinking, my gosh, if you get a chance to come up in the big leagues, you pick a fight with, with an iconic player like Don Mattingly. I don't know how smart that is. Um, but that's what happened. And, you know, Simpsons picked it up and they ran with it. That is probably one of the best stories I've never heard. That's fantastic. Thank <laughs> yes, you for that. True. That alone made my yeah. day. All right, Steve. Well, thank you so much <laughs> okay. for joining us here on the Brett Boom Podcast. We really appreciate yep. it. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Brett, great job, too. And I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Steve. Mailbag. All right, Brett, you know that sound. It is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. You ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. All right, and as we've said before, we want to thank everybody who has submitted questions to Brett Boone and at the Boone Twenty Nine on Twitter. This is where we are digging these up from. Let's do it. All right, this one is from John in Fort Myers. Brett, what is the best band of all time? ACDC and and Fleetwood Mac. It, so it's Ooh. kind of a tie for me, but I could I could go. That concert to me never gets old. I've been to each one of them probably three times, three or four times, and. Uh, you know, one's a little heavier than the other, and but but both of them equally unbelievable bands. Both of them. When I start different genres. When I started at a uh, Chicago radio station, a sports station out here, they were at the time in the same building as a rock station, and it was like an older rock station. It's called XRT. It's, it's a great classic, real music station. But I went there, and all of a sudden there were crowds around. I couldn't understand why, and someone said, "Yeah, Stevie Nicks just left." I was like, "Oh my God, she was here." Yeah. That was an incredible they're, moment. They're, man, Fleetwood Mac is that was an un, it's an unbelievable concert. Uh, Stevie just kind of floats in and out, and, <laughs> and uh, Buckingham, Lindsey Buckingham, he's unbelievable. He just plays start to finish. He doesn't leave the stage. Uh, you know, 
Fleetwood is the, is the drummer. He's kind of the character of the group. It's just a real, real awesome uh, concert they put together, and and equally so in ACDC. You know, I could watch Angus bang his head all all the, he, he he doesn't stop the entire no, concert. No, that is a that is an energy for different concert. reasons. There's two of my favorite. All right, I believe I can actually answer this question for you, but I'm going to let you do it. It's from Pete in Chicago. Brett, do you prefer the iPhone or an Android? iPhone. Never have had an Android. And never want to. Never Dad, want technology to. makes me nervous. I don't like change. It just give me an I, I don't even like going from an iPhone, you know, whatever to a whatever. <laughs> it, it, it makes me nervous. Just give me my old iPhone and just let it keep working. I've always said I do enjoy that whenever I text somebody, I know it's blue, which means they have an iPhone, too, and it makes my world so much more complete. I don't yeah, know why. it does. I see the blue, and I get happier. All right, the last one. Brett, this one is from Ed in Ocean Beach, California. You are from SoCal. So the big question is, can Brett Boone surf? Cannot. No? Cannot. Uh, well, I grew up in Jersey as a kid. So I, I was born, I was born in San Diego, but uh, I lived here for probably a year. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey for my early childhood up until high school. And then I moved back to Southern California. A uh, bunch of my buddies, I, I spent, you know, all my high school summers down at the beach with all my buddies, bunch of my friends were surfers. I never got into it, never had any interest. You know, they dragged me out there once in a while. And, and I, I do know one thing about surfing. You've got to be committed to it. It's really hard. And and I at that time in my life I was more interested in in chasing girls and, and playing baseball and, and surfing wasn't on the docket. But uh yeah, for as much time as I've 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 been at the beach in my life to to tell people no, I, I can't surf. It's it's you know, I can I can surf on a longboard. You take me to Wacky Key, those small waves, give me a longboard, I'm good to go. But but put me on a, a six foot six inch board in, in Newport Harbor uh, or Newport Beach. Uh, no go for me. All right. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone mailbag. Again, thank you to everybody who submitted their questions at the Boone 29. He's also on Facebook and Instagram, and you can submit questions there too. We'll get them all in. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. We want to thank Steve Sachs for jumping on and sharing some awesome stories. This has been the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. We'll do it again next time. See you, everybody.